0: You're listening to Why We Do What We Do. All right, welcome to Why We Do What We Do. I'm going to be your self-stimulatory host, Abraham. And I'm going to be your quirky, non-normative host, Shane. Excellent. We are a psychology podcast. We like to talk all things psychology. This is going to be the final main discussion in a mini series type thing we have been doing on applied behavior analysis. Nobody would have known this, but I sort of tentatively called this series ABA on trial as we began. But we really felt like that wasn't a good characterization of what we were talking about. And none of the names really worked. So instead, everything in this has just been called applied behavior analysis, part whatever, and then with a topic. What this topic entails is the fact that there are some people who feel strongly that applied behavior analysis is either bad or needs to change. And then what we decided to do was take those arguments and distill them down into some specific points that we could talk about and do so in such a way that we adequately, accurately, and charitably characterized the critiques and the discussions so that we could have this nuanced conversation in which we really tried to listen to what these critiques, these criticisms were, and then really try to bring some discussion to addressing those points.
1: And as we've gone through, we have listened to feedback that we've gotten. And I think one thing that maybe we haven't illustrated quite as much throughout some of the episodes is the value of being anti-ableist. You know, we have briefly touched on it. We're going to talk about it a lot more. And that is like ultimately the primary intent to go forward is that we are actively trying to learn how to be better anti-ableist folks. We didn't nail it every time. But we are willing to hear the feedback so that we can do better, educate ourselves so that we can do better. And that's part of the exploration of this. I think that's probably been one of the most valuable things for me as we explore this is looking at where my own biases come in and seeing how those have shaped up and changed throughout this series. I mean, we've been doing this series for weeks now. And by the time you hear this, I want to say this will be like the sixth or seventh week that we've officially recorded on this, at least close to it. And throughout that done some exploration we've gotten feedback we've done some additional research and and it's been super helpful and i would make the argument transformative but yeah it's been a really good journey and i think i'm I'm really excited that we're touching on this topic because this topic seems to be like a linchpin for so many of the arguments that come up and i think that there's going to be a lot to unpack here today
0: yeah and and so as a quick uh, quick recap the series that we've been doing we essentially talked about Who's making these arguments and what the arguments are. We talked about a history of punishment. We talked about the issue of a lack of generalization that can sometimes occur. The fact that sometimes individuals who experience ABA will demonstrate this rote, almost robotic-looking type of behavior that feels ingenuine, like they're not being independent. We talked about the fact that sometimes there is a heavy emphasis on compliance or it can feel like there's a heavy emphasis on compliance to the point where there's over compliance and individuals are not self-advocating. And then we've also talked about the this fact that you can get prompt dependency, that learners will only, these individuals will only demonstrate the learned things that they have contacted with these sort of artificial and supplementary prompts and supports and are not doing so independently. And then finally, we our, our last discussion. Prior to this one, we talked about the role of emotions and the extent to which behavior analysts address and deal with emotions. And all of these we've designed to more or less be standalone episodes, although they, do, they fit into the larger discussion. And that's true for this one today. And this one, in my opinion, is the culmination of the underlying theme of everything we've been talking about. And you said it really well. I think anti-ableism is the major theme of what we're looking at here. And what this discussion entails is the overemphasis in applied behavior analysis on reducing stereotyped but non-dangerous behaviors. Some people in the sort of anti-ABA crowd have called this basically just another version of of sort of conversion therapy or gay conversion, as it sometimes known, and that it forces kids to be something that they're not. And that mm-hmm. is one of the most substantive, I guess or maybe one of the loudest points that people argue about what they don't like about what behavior analysis is trying to do. And that's why it's one of the heaviest and biggest topics for us to cover.
1: And I think that's why we wanted to save it for last, because I feel like it's one that we really wanted to absorb as much feedback as we could going forward to so that we could provide this discussion through a more informed lens as we go forward in terms of like maybe some blind spots that we had going forward. But here, the argument is often this. This is what it was like distilled down to. Is that ABA therapists block, prevent, or otherwise enforce no self-stimulatory behaviors even when they are self-soothing. So hand flapping, you know, stimming with lights, stimming with toys, whatever that is, rocking. The argument is that ABA therapists block and prevent all of these. They also train away those idiosyncratic or quote, weird, quirky behaviors, that people with autism or autistic folks sometimes display, similar to how gay conversion therapy, quote unquote therapy, tries to train people to have different sexual preferences or identities, even though there is nothing wrong with their preferences or identity to begin with. Now, for a deeper dive on gay conversion therapy, we did a whole episode on that. Just in case you are wondering what our stance is, we're against it, definitely don't do it. The episode
0: was titled, the conversion
1: therapy is a no. Yes, 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 yes. That's where our stance is on this. And so that's a bias that we have coming in this. We are firmly against gay conversion therapy, but also this is the argument that we're going to see here is that ABA therapists block these self-stimulatory or quirky behaviors that make somebody who, somebody who identifies as autistic makes them quote unquote less autistic.
0: Inside of this, there is sort of another, related to this, and but maybe more general, is the theme of what kind of things to intervene on to provide some kind of change for. And we have talked in other episodes, actually numerous times throughout the discussions that we've had in our 217 prior episodes, 216. Mm -hmm. If you count one of our bonus episodes to our 218, 219 to 220. If you count some of the other like really short things that we've put out before. So we've been talking about this for, uh, sorry, let me be clear that not every one of those episodes has this discussion, but in the amount of episodes that we have done, this has come up numerous times, which is the conditions under which you change another person, and particularly you change their behavior, which is really changing them because we know each other from our behavior. And so what we've said about this is that the conditions under which it's appropriate to change someone's behavior is when it is in line with their value for how they would like their life to be. And there is a opportunity for improving the quality of life with their consent with their informed decision you know about that as much as possible and if they can't openly and vocally or verbally advocate for what they like that to be that someone is an advocate in their corner who is helping make that decision to you know guide like i think that they would benefit from having a particular skill or intervention to make their life a little easier and we don't always know what that's going to be for everyone but we can at least usually assume a position of do no harm Mm -hmm. as much as possible but that in my opinion is what behavior analysis is and we'll get into that but the idea of the conditions under which you would change someone's behavior I think and so the argument here has been that we are changing behaviors that don't need to, to change Mm -hmm. and that we are changing things about people that are not things that need to change because these are just who these people are. And so this is a very interesting one.
1: There's a lot packed into this. Yeah, so let's go ahead and start with this idea of stimming. If that's going to be the first part of the argument, then we have to make sure that our definitions are clear. So stereotypic or self-stimulatory stimming behaviors are usually movements or vocalizations that are pretty repetitive. They look the same. They don't have a clear purpose. And you'll see common examples like hand flapping, humming, repeated phrases, lining things up in straight lines, neat lines, stuff like that, staring at lights out of the corner of an eye. There are a lot of different rocking back and forth, hmm. jumping up and down, spinning. I mean, I, I've worked with learners who stim on... Uh, I had a learner that specifically stimmed on straight lines. Sure. And he would stare at aluminum siding and stim at that. He would stare at like storm drains in the road, which mm-hmm. led him to exit vehicles very quickly and stand in the middle of the road. So that became a dangerous behavior. And he also had very straight fingers. So what he would do is he would flip everybody off because his middle finger was very, very straight, and he would stem off of his middle finger. But while he's walking around in public, he's giving everybody the finger. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so that became a significant social problem because, you know, somebody's going to be like, well, hey, hey, buddy, what are you doing? So those are different examples.
0: I had some learners who there was certain videos they would like, and there was just a few seconds of a movie or video that they liked, and they would just rewind to the one spot and just watch it over and over and over and over and over and over again. Yeah. And some who, like, they love things that spin. So anytime there was a fan... Or anything that would whirl around really quick, washer, dryer, that sort of thing. They would like they would run over next to it, and they would like to get a specific angle. You know, they try different angles yeah. of looking at it or listening to it. Yeah, and then they would they would talk about it.
1: One thing I want to illustrate right here, right now, before we go further, when we say they, we're talking about individual learners that we worked with because every human has stims that we engage in. Yes. So let's not forget for a second. Let's not pretend while you're listening to this, that you're not playing with your hair, that you're not like right now I'm (laughs) fidgeting. I'm fidgeting with like this weird little thing. That's like, uh, I broke like the chain off my fan. And like, I just, I've been fidgeting with this since I broke (laughs) it like three months ago. Yeah. As a matter of fact, one thing that I do, and I, and I think I've talked about this on the show, I twist the corners of my pillowcases mm. to the point where I have no corners on my pillowcases. <laughs> I have twisted holes into my pillowcases. So, yeah. you know, everybody's got stims that they engage in. So this is not autistic centric this is not autistic specific this is something that humans tend to do and we don't realize that we do this often in different circumstances and contexts
0: and if you notice you'll start to see people's stems a lot of the time mine so i have a couple one is that i i sort of pick at the the edge of my thumb the skin right around there which has resulted in all, all kinds of problems yeah yep, yeah right same, there same yeah <laughs> that's that's the thing that i do another one that's a little quirkier maybe is that when I walk and I've talked about this on the show, I believe, but I imagine that there is a line whenever there's a 90 degree angle, usually 90 doesn't have to be whatever the 90 degree angle formed by some artificial structure. I imagine that there is a 130 degree line coming out from that angle. And I try and step over that line. (laughs) So (laughs) like I'm trying to not walk on lines that are protruding from corners as I imagine that they would be there if
1: they existed. So those are some of the stims that I do. I've seen that one in action. So I can confirm Abraham has done that in San Diego. I've watched it. (laughs) Yeah, that's a thing. So a lot of times (laughs) these look
0: maybe a little odd or a little quirky or a little funny, but not meant to be judgment. I think that's just, you know, again, trying to use words that I think are are easy to understand and what they mean. But these are almost always harmless behaviors. You're twisting the holes in the pill, your case, but at least no one's getting hurt.
1: And this is something to note from a normative standard, these are considered odd or quirky, right? Like from a normative standard, but like for that person, it's usually that's that's it's benefiting them, it's a self-soothing behavior, they're gonna engage in it, and it's not gonna hurt them or somebody else, right? So, with that being said, one of the early things that we learn, and specifically I remember learning in behavior analysis, was discussions around why you would change somebody's behavior. And the idea of changing behavior is a big responsibility. I remember I hear that professor in the back of my head saying specifically what gives you the right yeah in that talk he was talking about academic dishonesty he wasn't even talking about behavior analysis but he's like talking about the responsibility that comes along with being in behavior analysis and changing behavior and why would you cheat on anything what gives you the right you are out there trying to help people and you have this incredible power to change somebody's behavior so thus it comes back to the argument of under what conditions Is it appropriate to change somebody else's behavior, any behavior, any response that an organism engages in? What gives you the right? What are the contexts under which that would happen?
0: I like to listen to some NPR shows, and I specifically like the show Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Have you heard that one? No, I haven't. Okay. Well, they do sort of a news quiz show with a lot of comedians, and it's really fun, and they have people call into the show, and they'll always ask them, where are you from? What do you do? And twice on there, they've had someone who said, I'm a behavior analyst. As the caller, the person who called in. And then they'll say, What is that? Because they forget from uh, the first time to the second time, which is understandable, <laughs> like not something you hear. And both times they said something like, It means I work with kids with autism. And I always felt like that to me was the narrowest possible way that you could define what it is. And if I were to say, I'm a behavior analyst and someone asked me what that meant, I would say, It means that I try and help people change their behavior in such a way that it aligns with their values and goals for their life. Right. That's to me what it means to be a behavior analyst is for those people who like they would benefit from because they have advocated for it or someone else has advocated for on their behalf because that person is specifically just there to be their support for that kind of change that we then say, okay, like that's... As you said, this is a big responsibility. We can't take this sort of thing lightly. This is people's lives. If someone were to come to me and say, I'm going to change your behavior, I'd be like, why? You know, what are you trying to change right. and why? Like, I feel like right. I don't need right. to change my behavior. Exactly. And that's the sort of ableist position of like, well, I'm going to change your behavior because I can, because you, it needs to be changed, right? Because I know what's good for you. Exactly. Yes. Yes. Thank you. It's because I know what's good for you. Whereas instead, I think the approach is, How are we going to identify that this is in this person's best interest? And then how are we going to move forward with supporting them? And that's why I think there's been a push in the last several years for saying, for calling it support, because support is the better word to capture what the intention of what we're doing is.
1: Right. So to go back and answer the question of under what conditions... We've now have this conversation of values, of making sure that the voices of the folks that we're serving are heard. The answer to all of this is when changing behavior would allow that person to have improved access to more reinforcers and be in a more inclusive, less restrictive environment. So again, the answer is why would we change somebody's behavior when doing so would allow that person to have an improved access to more reinforcers and a more inclusive or less restrictive environment? This is critical. For all of this in doing that, it involves the voice of that person as the primary driver for what those goals are, not the parent going, they don't know what they're talking about, not the caregiver or the group home staff going, oh, they don't know what they're saying. It is that person and that voice that we need to be listening to from the very beginning as the primary driver for every single thing that we do or attempt to do or are, are able to do within that context.
0: That's exactly it. And that's even written in some textbooks that you'll find on behavior analysis. That is what we're up to. I mean, maybe that's where we need to, to bring the conversation is to, is to that. But I, I do feel, at least in this, you know, from my experience or my training, in line with my values, that stating it in that way makes sense to me. And I think, as you said, if someone came to me and said, I want to make sure you have access to more reinforcers and a more inclusive and less restrictive environment then I would be more like, cool. <laughs> what what how yeah. what does that look like? <laughs> you know? Yeah, for sure. That to me is is something where I feel like always just trying to reflect on. I don't know what ever, everybody's experience is going to be, but I can certainly speak from my own experience of like how how would I feel in the situation? Sort of going back to that perspective or perspective taking of just if I were on the receiving end of this, how would that be? And so that's why I like to sort of play that game if you will yeah now specifically we've been talking about the self-stimulatory thing and that will be the sort of main form of this this behavior change that we're talking about and mostly because that's the one where we it's the most obvious that people have this complaint of like why are you trying to change this it's self-soothing it's not harmful and specifically with this self-stimulatory and we said stimming but just to make sure that's that's what that's in reference to is self-stimulatory yeah. There's no reason to try and block to try and block or change these behaviors completely. In fact, there may not be a reason to change them at all. I often really love to see the little sort of STEM behaviors that kids do, and as you said, most people even have their own STEM. So I I don't know. Like they're they're kind of cute and they're fun and like you know everybody does it. It's not just kids who have autism diagnoses. Seeing little kids who don't have these diagnoses we'll do it like i know there's you know this little 4-year-old girl who runs who like for some reason just has to take her shirt shirt off and go running around and like she's 4 so it's not you know, it's not a big deal right. but like it's just a silly little thing that she does and i'm not sure that would qualify necessarily as a stim in this context but people do these quirky little things and they're just humans and like it's fine
1: we all do it now to kind of frame this a little bit though and why this often gets targeted is there are stims that can become more problematic When they occur so frequently, so often, or at such high intensities that the action itself, the response itself, whatever that stim is, results in some kind of diminished access to additional reinforcers. It also ultimately results in creating a more restrictive environment. Right. So what we mean is that it's happening so often the learner can't often do something else they need to do something that they that is going to contact reinforcers they want to see. It's gonna restrict how often they can go out into the community or do other things. And and so we're gonna go over some examples to kind of talk about this.
0: Yeah. And it's almost kind of like like an addiction or like a habit. And so it's, you know, some people who will have those ticks, for example, those not T I C K S but T I C S. Yeah. I guess I think of Tourette. Syndrome is an example of this, where like they will specifically avoid going to certain situations because they're afraid of how they're going to show up to other people. Right. And so they might ask, Can you help me get this more under control? And behavior analysts have actually had a a hand in helping with those habit reversal programs, which we've also talked about in previous episodes. To it's like, it's not necessarily a problem that you engage in this, but if you'd like to have more control, then we can help you develop that with some targeted practice and things that you might do. And same here is that some of these are so frequent and so intense that they might want to do other things, but they're doing things that prevent them from having access to other activities they like to have because they're doing them so intensely. You know, for example, we might have an individual who engages in this self-stimulatory behavior so frequently that they can't or don't participate in any kind of educational activities such as being in school. That they fail to dress themselves or learn any kind of independent self care so that they have to then rely on other people to always be doing sort of the basic, basic care stuff for them. That they refuse or don't learn to bathroom independently. That they stop in the middle of a crosswalk on a busy street and fail to see any kind of oncoming danger. Mm-hmm. Like those are situations where it reaches a level where. Even if they can't necessarily articulate that they would like to have that level of safety, I don't think anyone would argue that, like, well, we should just let them get hit by that bus because they're really enjoying that self simulatory time. Like, no one has that argument. And so we need to find, like, at what point does it reach a level of frequency or intensity that we would strongly advocate that we step in and try and at least turn down the dial on that a little bit.
1: Yeah, and to kind of like remove some of the cuz cuz one thing I want to kind of make sure that we emphasize here is like in those circumstances and this goes back to a phrase that you said earlier, we're not talking about removing or reducing these stims entirely. Yeah. This is not saying don't stim on these things at all, right? If you want to stim on a storm grate, let's figure out how to do that safely, right? Is there a safe place to do that? Do you need another skill so that you can avoid danger in that space, right? Like, can we get you to like stim after you get dressed? So that way you don't have to worry about like that interrupting it. Can you, is there a time and a space to do that? Like, can we shape this up in a way, can we work with you to shape this up in a way that you can still engage with this preferred activity, this thing that's self-soothing and this thing that's helpful while also still getting you to be able to access those things that are necessary for you to thrive in the community. And we're not saying like you need to be like everybody else in the community, but it is one of those things where it's like, you know, I can't stand in the middle of the road. Right. And I get that's a red herring thing. But so let me give you another example. I'll give you there's we have plenty of examples of this. Yeah. Masturbation. Masturbating is an example of self-stimulatory behavior that most humans engage in. Yeah. And we've talked about masturbation before. And we have said about individuals with intellectual disabilities and masturbating. It's a behavior that's going to occur. And the thing is, is it always comes down to as long as it's not dangerous. And that's true for the general population, right? I can't go masturbate in a food court. I'm going to get a charge. The same is true for folks with disabilities. The same is true for if I'm masturbating and engaging in harmful behavior and hurting myself, that I'm going to require medical attention. The same will be true for somebody with autism. So. As long as it's not dangerous, it's acceptable. There's a time and a place. So what we try to do is we don't teach not to masturbate. We teach when to masturbate, where to masturbate. And and in some circumstances, safety protocols around that so that somebody can do that in a way that's not harmful. That's not harmful to them. That's not harmful to somebody else. That's not harmful to the entire group that's involved with this person.
0: And some of them, like there are many instances and types of self-stimulatory behavior that would require no intervention whatsoever like and, and i guess requires maybe not the, the term to use there but there we wouldn't even say that there would be a, a need for it because it doesn't create that kind of situation for that individual where they're in danger or where it's wildly inappropriate or where it's preventing them from doing things that they want to do and so you could sort of think of it as like for the argument that we're making here is just we would like to help you, I guess, get a little better control over this so that you can make a deliberate choice about when you access it in such a way that it's not then preventing you from being able to do other things that you want to do. So you might want to be able to go to a mall because it's got all these cool straight lines you want to look at or you want to go, you know, shopping to buy this thing that you like or, you know, maybe this you really enjoy the outing there because you like the food court or something. Well, if you're going in there and you're doing these things that are like dangerous or inappropriate to the point that you could get arrested for them, then that's a place where I guess, first of all, no one's going to be willing to put you in that situation in the first place. And even if you somehow found yourself there, then you're going to result in a more restrictive environment with access to fewer reinforcers. And so just where our approach is like, let's do this in a place that it's safe and in a way that it's safe and a way that's going to allow you to have access to it but won't prevent you from them being able to be in that food court.
1: Yeah. I want to point out something within that. So when we talk about stimming, most of the time it comes from an ableist perspective. Yeah. Most of the time stimming becomes an issue of you're not doing the things that every other kid is doing. Right. It comes from a place of, this is the parent's problem, not my problem. Like that's the learner's problem, right? This is the parent's problem and parents concern, and they just can't tolerate it or deal with it. Yeah. Most of the time, the majority of self-stimulatory behavior is not necessary to treat I would make the argument that uh, 98 to 99 percent of the time you don't even need to touch it that could be that's just me just taking a guess because most of the time it's not a pro- I mean almost every time it's not a problem for the learner and that they it's a preference but most of the time it's somebody else's problem and not the learner themselves right and most of the time it's not impacting their lives so often and so much that it's actually necessary to do anything with it so when we're coming from the space most of the time behavior analysts shouldn't even be touching this yeah
0: and just as you said i think you know and credit to the argument for people who are making this there are a lot of behavior analysts who go after these type of behaviors just because Mm -hmm. you know because parents want to or because it's relatively small and easy to take on or for what other reason i heard a story about and i i'm actually I, i didn't bother checking whether this is true but i feel like i heard this on the news many many years ago that there was an individual that was neurodiverse who engaged in this, sort. it was just a lot of yelling and sort of screaming and the family didn't know what to do about it. And what they did is they ended up getting collagen inject or maybe it wasn't collagen, but um, maybe Silicon, it was something injected in the child's vocal cords to stop them. So they wouldn't be able to scream anymore. Oh, Yeah. And I was, I was outraged to hear that anybody would do this to an individual because like yeah. this is, that is wildly inappropriate. And you know, I think maybe a hot topic here. I don't know. I'm going to go, I'm going to take a stand anyway. So you feel free to disagree with me, but that's how I've always thought about decline cats. Mm -hmm. It's sort of like, Oh, I'm going to rip your fingers off because I don't like the things that you're doing. And like, and I'm in going in and injecting something in a kid's vocal cords because they're yelling. I'm like, there's just, I'm like either change the behavior or like, don't put yourself in that situation. But like under no circumstances, it inappropriate to permanently change the morphology of someone's physical structure because you don't like their behavior. Like, right. Particularly if it's not like, if it was like cancer, obviously then yeah, go and get that cancer out of there. But like, we're we're not talking about those things. We're talking about normal, you know, physical features that somebody has. It'd be like, you know, if someone engaged it demonstrated those visual stereotopies you mentioned. Like I've seen kids, what they do is they'll sort of move their finger to just just out of their peripheral vision, and they like the way uh-huh. that that looks. I'm modeling this for Shane. <laughs> <laughs> yep.
1: I, I know yeah, you can't. I, gotcha. I, know, I know what that is. Yeah, <laughs> yeah The the
0: uh, our listeners can't see what I'm doing, obviously, but it'd be like going like, "Well, this is a problem, so I'm going to take your eye out." You know, I'm like, no, that's not. Right. That is a wildly inappropriate reaction to this this thing that's happening. So you know, I just want to say that I think we're definitely on the side of those are things that don't need to change. And there are people who go after them. And I think that just as you said, the message here is that that is an ableist thing
1: to do. Yeah. And when we say th- go after those things, we're talking about the behaviors, not the people.
0: Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
1: <laughs> yeah. I had somebody give me feedback on like something I'd post. I was like, I'm actually not talking about people. When I say things, I'm talking about something else, but I get where that message can come out. So yeah, We understand this is getting old. we've said this in just about every single episode, but more training, more supervision and close contact and adherence to our ethical guidelines will help this more values based approaches and person centered approaches around the idea that we should be accounting for the voices that we're serving, we should be listening more and worried about our clinical practice. A little bit less, like we should be less worried about like what's a problem for the people around that person and more about what's a problem for that person themselves and looking at kind of synthesizing all of that information in a way that's going to make some kind of meaningful clinical outcome for the person who is being affected by the therapy itself. And so I
0: think the behavior analysis and behavior analysts have done a lot to try and address this. And I think that this is an ongoing area of, of development. And one where there's a lot of discrepancy across clinics and clinicians as to how and what way the stereotyped self-stimulatory or stimming behavior can and should be addressed. And so I think it's all been moving in a direction that I agree with, and there's still room for improvement. Which brings us to the main point of this argument, which is generally trying to change a kid as being similar to, as we mentioned, the sort of gay conversion or conversion therapy. And how we said, like, this is not something that we support in any way. We're anti-conversion therapy. We're anti a lot of things, I would say. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's, you know, I think that the reason is and the, the implication that there's a pro something. But I think the anti whatever movements that have developed largely have because there is a systemic issue that is the norm. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I think there's being anti racist, anti sexist, anti homophobic, anti transphobic, anti ableist. Those are the antis because the norm is not anti those things. Right. And that systems keep those problems going. So the broader implication is something we addressed at the beginning of this section. Pointing out that ethical guidelines for when to change behavior, and again, just to <laughs> reiterate this again, is when doing so would improve access to reinforcers. And we've used that term a lot, but let's just say valuable activities or events, and that would allow a person to participate in a more inclusive and less restrictive environment. I'll concede that this may sound subjective and not necessarily feel super reassuring against the kinds of things that might be targeted for change because. Maybe you're imagining like, well, you're saying that, but then you're still advocating for changing things that, in my opinion, are not preventing access to a more inclusive environment.
1: So let's go ahead and take the example of stimming is weird, right? That's something that you hear as like an argument. Stimming is non-normative, and so it will result in social isolation. You'll hear a therapist maybe make the argument that stimming is weird, will make the individual stand out from their peers, and therefore I should stop it or change it. That might be an argument that you hear. And just, just to kind of keep going back to that stimming argument, the argument isn't entirely wrong, but it's not totally correct. And I think this is a really important part where we talk about nuance in context, right? Yes. So generally speaking, there is nothing in behavior analysis that encourages the therapist to change the quirky behaviors of an individual or any other disability. It doesn't require us to do that. The assumption here is coming from an ableist system, which says that everybody in the classroom is doing something, so this weird behavior is non-normative because nobody else is doing it but this person. Rather than saying, this person is engaged in a response that's maybe benefiting them in self-soothing, Let's look at the context and see if it is impacting them. Because at the end of the day, I've worked with plenty of autistic folks that do not give a shit about making friends. That is not their goal, right? That's fine. That's okay. Because not everybody needs friends. Not everybody wants friends. So the assumption that everybody needs to have peer normative people in their lives is not necessarily a fair assumption. That is an ableist assumption. At
0: least not those kind of friends. Yeah. I can relate to this to an extent of feeling like in high school, I was kind of an iconoclast. I kind of did things that particularly because I was in a smaller town that were with more sort of conservative traditional values, if you will. And so the things that I was doing where I would, you know, I got my ears pierced and I might let my hair grow long and I might wear shirts that have... Band logos that might say something that's a little off color for what they're used to. And then had my my friend's parents saying that because of how I dressed, I was a scallywag. You know that sort, of, the kind of language that they used in, in, this, in the town that I grew up. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. You lived in a pirate town, of course.
0: Yeah, and I—that's right. And so I could, I could imagine there being a case where they say, you know what, we need to change this person so that they fit in with the values of this culture they're living in right here, because we, the rest of us, agree that that's not appropriate. And how I would have fought against that tooth and nail. Right. And I, and I think the, the parallel here in, in this sort of saying that just because you're saying that they stand out doesn't mean that you should, you should be concerned about that because they not, might not want those friends. So, real
1: quick, what is
0: iconoclast?
2: Uh,
0: yeah, I feel like we haven't had as many vocab words in here recently. Yeah, that's a good one. We ran out of vocab. Thanks. And iconoclast is someone who essentially, I always use it in, as someone who rebukes. Sort of traditions, commonly held beliefs, and things of that nature. I think it more specifically denotes someone who actively attacks or destroys those sort of traditional ways of being, which is not necessarily incorrect for how I I carried myself. Yeah. But I wasn't out to like burn things to the ground, you know, but I also was one who was like, I was a little contrarian and how I would react to some of these sort of what you might consider cultural norms and traditions and that sort of thing. Like as an example, I actually really don't like it when people say, bless you when I sneeze. <laughs> I know someone who gave the example of like saying, it's like saying thank you when somebody farts, <laughs> you know, yeah. it's sort of like, why, why is that a thing that we do? Like, why wouldn't you say bless you when somebody coughs, you know, right. Or something else. Like if you're going to go that route, then like any bodily function they have, like, why aren't we acknowledging those things? And so I was like, yeah, that doesn't seem to be a point to this one. So that's when I, I ask people not to, to resist the urge, you know, if, if they're gonna, if they hear me sneeze to, to try and hold it in yeah. while also appreciating that, that like that can be really, really important to them. And like, in that case, I'm not going to try and stop them. Yeah. So I think that's fair. Got off topic. on being an iconoclast. And just because I've been talking so long, I'm going to keep talking. (laughs) So yeah, I want to acknowledge again, that I don't think that the argument is saying, You shouldn't try to teach kids anything because that's changing who they are. Like, I don't don't think that's the position that's being made. If that is the position that's being made, then we have a different answer, and I would take a stronger position, position against it. But I don't think the argument is suggesting that there is nothing acceptable to teach them. So I'm not going to address it as if it were. What I think the argument is saying is that everybody should learn to accept these individuals as who they are with their idiosyncratic behaviors whether or not they look quirky or weird, or not normative. And I think there's been a movement to say that the world needs to accept that there are neurodiverse people who behave in different ways that sometimes seem odd or quirky. So let's instead tackle that.
1: Yes. So argument one or bullet point one for this. Yes, we agree. We should absolutely accept these folks for, yeah. for for their quirkiness and all that. Here's the thing about normative comparisons. Normative comparisons are based in systems of racism, sexism, patriarchy, all the, the nonsense that goes along with straight white dudes in power. I mean, all <laughs> you have to do is reference the Salem witch trials. All you have to do is reference the Tuskegee airmen. All you have to do is reference... Any sort of marginalized population, if you look at any of their histories, you will find that normative comparisons have caused significant problems unnecessarily for these groups. So do we agree that neurodiverse folks should be accepted for their quirkiness? Hell yes. Without a doubt, we absolutely do. Sorry, I had to take a soapbox on that.
0: No, that was great. I loved it. I love animated (laughs) soapbox, chain. With that being said, there are lots of neurotypical people with these stereotyped, maybe odd or quirky behaviors that don't readily get a pass, even from people that argue that neurodiverse individuals should get a pass. And racism, sexism, as you said, other forms of more obvious bigotry have been so impossible to change that they are actually on the rise again at the time that we're recording this and have been, I think for a few years, I think we've been seeing a rise in totalitarianism. We've been seeing a rise in despots and tyrants in authoritarian regimes mm-hmm. in general anti-humanitarian bigotry. I think these things ebb and flow. We're currently in a flow. Mm-hmm. If we can't get people to simply agree to treat one another as humans When the only distinction is who you're attracted to or what your skin color is or what God you believe in or don't believe in, then I don't think there's much of a chance of the world uniting behind this cause. It'd be great if they did, but I'm not optimistic that they're going to.
1: So, if we can't change everyone in the world, right, to get in line and treat everybody like humans, what should we do about it? Yelling at them isn't going to solve it. Going after the professionals who are trying to help won't solve it. But what makes the most sense is to do our best to educate the global audience about neurodiverse people, about their needs, using your privilege to bring them up into that space so that we can have the opportunity to listen to them instead of speaking for them, right? And teaching neurodiverse people how to thrive in an unaccepting world. So hope for the best, prepare for the worst, but ultimately this is a collaborative effort where we need advocates, we need people who are listening, we need to be open to hearing different points of views, and we need to understand and self-reflect on the fact that many of the systems and many of the places that we learn from are learning histories themselves, and many of the opportunities that we've had to learn about folks have come from systems that are incredibly biased, that come from a place of one perspective and not all perspectives. And with that being said, I mean, we have to be able to check that and do better by moving away from some of that stuff and educating ourselves in a really meaningful way.
0: Yeah, I think there's just there's a very practical, pragmatic approach here that sometimes means changing or reducing or hiding behaviors that that person might engage in that will ultimately make their life more difficult. Right. Mm -hmm. As you might imagine, making this decision is not easy and it should not be easy. We should essentially challenge as much as possible the conditions under which we feel like we are trying to justify making that decision. And we should generally err on the side of don't change it unless you have explicit reason for doing so. And then and only then, like then you can consult the family and the individual as clearly and as frequently as possible to make sure that you have a plan moving forward that is going to provide the right level of support. And it's you know what you said exactly is how did they thrive in an unaccepting world we will try and change the world we're going to you know we and everyone else should too that is on the side of being anti ableist we are going to try and change the world and in the meantime while the world is fighting that change we're going to try and help these people be as successful in that world as they can be and i think most of the time as you said 99% of the time we don't we even with that approach we don't need to change some of these self-stimulatory idiosyncratic behaviors. Right. And sometimes there will be practical reasons for making that decision. And it's just so complicated and nuanced and it's going to be individual to the people who are on the receiving end of this. So I would generally advocate for, we don't change those behaviors. Mm -hmm. And if it comes, when push comes to shove, if ultimately what is going to happen is it, it puts that individual in danger in any way then I'm going to advocate that we do change those behaviors.
1: Yep, absolutely. So, I mean, that's a lot to unpack. So do you want to to kind of like distill this down maybe? Like we can kind of do some take-home points to kind of wrap this up and see if we can maybe put this into a couple bullet points for people to walk away with? Yeah,
0: so some sort of take-homes, I think that both summarize this argument, but also this whole series as a whole can be summarized as, one, we hear you and your concerns are valid. I think that's one of the most important things we can say Two, most of these concerns where they occur are not endemic to behavior analysis, but just some practitioners. And that what that does speak to is that there is room for systemic improvement to ensure that there are better safeguards in place to prevent some of these things from happening when they do occur. Which leads me to three. We are trying to do better as a field. I think we are always striving. I think there are reformers who push really hard for this, but I think even those people who are simply in charge of helping systems maintain, they're also interested in change and looking for opportunities for doing better. And I think that this field as a whole is founded on humanitarian principles of supporting people and caring for people, and that there's just a lot of room for human error in there, and we're trying to find it and improve on that. And
1: yeah, so I'll leave it at that. And ultimately, we can't do better without listening, yes. which harkens back to point one, right? So we have to listen. And if you're a behavior analyst, if you're a psychologist, if you're somebody working in the field and you're serving a marginalized group of people, you need to listen to them. You need to hear them and hear what their experience is so that you can personally do better and help improve the systems in which you are operating so that the entire system can improve. Beyond that. I mean, if you are refusing to listen to the folks that are telling you that their experience sucks, then you are part of a larger systemic problem. Yeah, you're in the wrong. (laughs) Just. You just are. Yeah, you're in the wrong. Yep. And I think another point, too, we'd make is it's always worth considering the alternatives. You know, when you start looking at this in, in perspective and context and in the types of treatments that do exist for folks like lifelong sedative medications, ineffective interventions for people without ethical codes, allowing inappropriate behaviors at times that result in harm or danger to the individual, permanent institutionalization, you're talking about. I've worked with folks who were dropped off at a facility and they never saw their parents again Yeah, and they never saw their caregivers again. I mean, and I'm not talking like five years, 10 years, I'm talking 40, 50, 60 years yeah. that they never saw a single family member. Right. So is that better? Is that, <laughs> I mean, is that what, what uh, you know what I mean? So like when we talk about these alternatives, we have to look at the context in which our current health system operates and there are not really a lot of better alternatives and not saying that it's like, oh, you take what you can get. I would argue that behavior analysis is a pretty damn good alternative.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think we want to espouse an anti-ableist message and position. I think that is one of, a take home in and of itself. And there are people that are not as good at, about doing this sort of thing. And as, as you sort of said, and as we've already said, this is not what behavior analysis is. And no place does it advocate for using these taking these approaches that have this ableist orientation to them. And there's, there's more nuance, there's more learning, there's more unpacking, you know, we want to find where our blind spots are and do better and improve those. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I think that's, that's more or less, I think where I want to leave it at that this is, it is a, a heavy topic. That's why we broke it into several pieces. We are planning to do sort of a debrief wrap up session. It'll be short, but I think we want to take on what the experience has been like for us researching this, recording this, and en- engaging with the feedback we've we've gotten, which has been amazing. And there's been a lot of it. It has at times been a little more controversial or uh, angry and at times very kind. But all of it's been valuable and we appreciate that. It has been a journey. So I think we'll we'll do a debrief with that. And also we're planning to... And we've already started arranging to put together an episode where we have some other professionals in the field who are going to talk more about anti ableism as well as some individuals with an autism diagnosis to speak, you know, from their experience as well.
1: Mm -hmm. This is far from over. This is not the end point. This is not the finish line for this. But we are really excited to kind of like. I mean, I would say we're excited to wrap it up in that now it feels good to have the information out there. And now the work needs to be done. Yes. I mean, that's really ultimately like this is this is the primer for us to do the work to do better. Love it. Do you have anything else? I don't have anything else on this one. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Great. 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 (laughs) This has been fun. This has been quite a
0: journey. I'm looking forward to our next steps moving forward. I'm looking forward to if you have anything to say about this or any of the other episodes in this miniseries or any topic that we've ever done, if you'd like to tell us about something we should do, please reach out to us. You can contact us at info at WWDWWDPodcast.com. We're also on all the social media platforms. You can leave us a rating and review wherever you listen to this. I'd like to give a couple recommendations.
1: Let's do it. Recommendations. So, I like food, and uh, I live in the South. And there's just something about really good <laughs> Southern food. And my recommendation is good Southern biscuits, homemade Southern biscuits with a little bit of jam, maybe some honey, maybe some butter, whatever it is. There is nothing better than like something that's made from scratch. That's made from a kitchen from somebody who knows how to cook Southern. Now, if you're like somewhere like, let's say, I don't know, I'm going to hazard a guess, Reno, Nevada, (laughs) and you want something (laughs) like a good Southern biscuit, you have to travel for it. Unless there's somebody from the South who has moved into your area and carried their generations and generations of biscuit recipes with them. (laughs) But there's just something really wonderful about a good crumbly buttery biscuit and that's my recommendation go get some biscuits
0: it's, it's possible that the uh, the atmosphere and the environmental conditions here wouldn't even support expert southern baker's ability to create the southern biscuit experience you know
1: that's true that's you're just not going to re- re- recreate it yeah you know unfortunately it's hot and very 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 dry
0: and in the south it's yeah. it's very moist also yes. hot though yes so <laughs> hot but a 100 percent humidity yeah exactly so there's something maybe there's something in the air but <laughs> that's uh-huh. pretty great <laughs> uh also not talking about biscuits as they might be called in some british place or british colonized place where biscuits probably refers to like a tuna roll or something
1: or a cookie come on get out of here <laughs> that's not a biscuit that's a cookie yeah
0: <laughs> i'm i'm teasing all our
1: <laughs> all our british folks yeah
0: there are there are, we've got a good we got a number of listeners and yeah It's good stuff. All right. I'm going to recommend a, just a sort of an attitude I've been trying to adopt, if you will, where I've been trying to think about all the people around me, regardless of where I am, as being sort of on my inner circle and sort of like, almost like family. Mm -hmm. And I've been trying to have this perspective of like, even if I don't know you, like I'm going to behave as if I do. And that I'm sort of part of your inner group in a very, very close relationship. and. What that has allowed me to do is sort of shift my perspective toward thinking, you know, how would I react to one of my really close friends who is driving like a butthead, you know, Mm -hmm. driving like a jerk? Is I might be like, dude, what are you doing? But I'm not going to be like, I'm going to run you off the road. I'm going to flip your car over. I hope you're not even wearing a seatbelt, you know, where I think that some people get that angry road rage sort of thing. And also when you're like in a store and you've got someone who's, in line in front of you and it's same sort of thing as like one of your close friends or a close family member or something and they take the last, whatever or they get in front of you in line, they're taken really slow is thinking about it. We're all everyone here. We're all sort of part of the same team, if you will. And so even if I don't like what you're doing right now, I'm ultimately going to be like, you know, we are in this together in some capacity and I'm just, I've been trying to reframe my, my way of thinking about it to, as much as possible, eliminate the us versus them thinking, mm-hmm. even those who I think I, I disagree with vehemently on political and social issues. I'm trying to think about this as like, we're still part of the same team. You're wrong. And I will, I will argue you into the ground that you're wrong <laughs> about whatever it is that you're wrong about, but I'm not going to treat you as an other or hate you. It's like, we are, we're a part of the same team. And like, I therefore almost have a responsibility to be like, I'm I'm gonna argue with you because like we need to figure this stuff out so that we can continue to work together. Yeah. I like that. So that's my recommendation, I guess, is to treat everyone as they're they're on your team, they're on your they're on your family,
1: they're in your circle, if you will. Yeah, I like that. It's very wholesome. Thanks. And, and I and I support that. I I support that that viewpoint.
0: Yeah, and I think, you know, the it's not something you can do at least not for me, I I've struggled to do it really. I have to be deliberate, I guess. And so I, I guess I would recommend like, don't, don't necessarily think like that. You just have to change your whole way of thinking like all the time, immediately all over the place. Cause I think that would be difficult, but just try it on, you know, just, just try it on at some point, particularly when you find yourself confronted with an us versus them mentality is just at one point, just try it. That's my thought. Yeah i like it all right cool let's go and wrap it up there this has been a nice long one i hope that you have enjoyed this series we're looking forward to hearing your feedback before we go we would like to thank the following awesome people justine megan mike shauna and green queen our patreon supporters if you'd like Mm -hmm. to join that list you can hop on for as little as a dollar a month the higher level you join for the more perks and benefits you get and it helps us do the show and and support the kind of efforts we're engaged in and you know, we we do this as a volunteer effort right now, and and just try and, and cover the co- our operating costs, while everyone works for free, and it's not super sustainable. But you know, I've just I've been lucky to have a great team of generous people, really being helpful with me. So you could certainly help help out what we're doing if you can join even for a month, then that's great, and then you are not obligated to stay any longer than you want to. But yep, I think that's all I've got. This is a good place to end it. This is Abraham.
1: I think so too. This is Shane. We're out. See ya.
2: You've been listening to Why We Do What We Do. Why We Do What We Do is supported in part by our amazing patrons. Thank you. If you like what you heard, consider becoming a patron by heading to patreon.com slash You can also rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts or share this episode with your friends. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Find us at www.podcast on your favorite social media platforms.